Um, good morning. Good morning. Hey. Uh, so this morning we're carrying on from uh, where Chris left off uh, very bravely last week and um, we're picking up at Thessalonians. Uh, one thing I should say before I start is uh, Tracy gave me a, a call or a text or something earlier in the week and she said, oh, we're doing this interview thing. Does that kind of gel with where, you, with where you're going? And I said, yeah, absolutely, fantastic idea. And then as I sat with this further, I ended up heading off in a different direction. So don't get too confused if you see that, oh, there, there's two kind of things that you can do with this passage. They're both correct. Um, there is heaps of comfort and heaps of confidence, and I'll actually be touching a bit on the confidence side, even though I may not use that word. Um, but there's a lot of comfort, a lot of confidence to be taken from this passage Uh, However, in the last couple of days I felt God putting on my heart something slightly different, related but slightly different, so I just thought I'd clear up any confusion um, before we started. Uh, If you could throw that slide up for me. I'm not sure if you've seen a picture like this before. This is uh, what they call dirty lightning. So dirty lightning is if you have a volcanic eruption and the ash spews into the air then um, the ash can generate electrical charge, I guess, and, you, and can create lightning storms. And they look phenomenal. Uh, I have two kind of things I'd love to see in my life related to volcanoes. One is a, um, a uh, live lava flow. I just think that would be amazing. Go to Hawaii, something like that, where the lava is just slowly rippling across the ground and, I don't know, toss a Coke can in or something and watch it melt. They're like some sort of weird Terminator type thing melting down in the lava. And the other is this. However, that's probably a bit less safe than the live lava flow. But the reason I've got that up there is because, and that's just going to keep playing in the background, so I'm going to have to resist the urge to keep looking at it because they're so interesting. But um, the, reason, the reason I've got that up is because uh, this, this passage that we're, we're talking about um, talks about the return of Christ, the return of Jesus and, uh, and, it, and the Bible uses some imagery around that. And uh, what I'm going to do in a moment is I'm going to get you to close your eyes and I'm going to get you to do some imagining. So I thought, oh, I'll give you some, some visual fodder to kind of put in your brain and then when you're closing your eyes and you're imagining how tremendous it could be, uh, the, the visual effects of Jesus coming back, um, it's got to be better than this. I mean, this is just the natural world. It's got to be even more amazing than that. So um, close your eyes for a minute. Uh, you switch on your imagination switch wherever that is mine's behind my ear Uh, and imagine this what would it be like if Jesus returned today what would that be like imagine the tremendous thunder and the sky just flashing with huge bolts of lightning but not just in one place or uh, over one you know little locale but instead all over the world there'd just be this humongous lightning storm like those pictures I showed you times a thousand Um, all over the world simultaneously people would hear that trumpet call of God they would hear the voice of the archangel um, announcing announcing God's return uh, and calling those people who have uh, died in faith and those who are alive in faith and calling them and sweeping them up if you will um, all up, dead or alive, um, or re-alive, to form the honour guard for the return of the mighty Son of God. You can imagine if the, the noise of it, the hugeness, the absolute 
earth-shaking reality of it, the fearsome power, uh, unlike anything that we could ever encounter during our life. Just imagine sensory overload. Uh, Hold that picture in your mind for a second. Try to imagine where you are, what it feels like for you, what you're doing. Um, Hold that and then think, in imagining all this, honestly, uh, does it have any impact? Are you excited by the idea or does it just kind of feel a little bit unreal, a little bit of a Christian fairy tale? Um, You can open your eyes if you like. Does it seem impossible that you could ever actually see that sort of thing? Um, Does it seem like it's actually a bit irrelevant, not really connected to the life you live 24-7? You've got school or you've got work or you've got uni, you've got kids, you've got reports to do, you've got emails to answer, there's TV to watch, there's lunches to prepare, there's lawns to mow, there's dishes to wash and life can feel a little bit repetitive, a little bit mundane. Each day can kind of blur into the next and I think it's really easy to take something like this times a thousand, the return of God, the return of Jesus and just kind of go, yeah, doesn't really relate. I'll just put it in the um, Christian myth box, the fairy tale box, and maybe, maybe somehow, somewhere that might happen. But uh, it's really got nothing, nothing to do with me in any serious sense. Um, it's easy when we get in this routine to start to feel like a deist. I'm not sure if you if you're familiar with worldview and and different r- religious forms, um, but a deist is someone who believes God exists. Um, in their case, I'm saying we might feel like a deist, not become a deist, but in their case, uh, they would say, "Oh, God's not really a personal God. He's more like they they often use the famous example of a clockmaker. He's built this beautiful universe, this grandfather clock, and he's wound it up." And then he's walked off to the kitchen and he's getting himself a drink or doing something else and the universe just just takes care of itself. It's not, not really something that he's involved with. Now, in our case, I think we would all agree God's a personal God. He wants to be involved in our lives. However, I'm not sure we generally feel convinced that we're going to be involved in this or that it really has too much to offer for us. We tend to think of God in terms of the immediate, in terms of our day-to-day life, you know, reading the Bible, going to work, talking to my friends about God maybe, whatever it is. Uh, But we have a tendency maybe, I'd put to you, a little bit of a tendency to make God small, shrink him down, because this, this is a little bit hard to get our heads around, so let's just put that off in the too hard basket and shrink God down. Um, This week, I got a very important piece of mail. Uh, It was this. I don't know if you can see what this is, but this is like the best butter knife you'll ever use. It's amazing. 
Um, it's called the butter up, if you will. Uh, and uh, I actually ordered this as a gift for Rachel um, almost a year ago, seven months ago. So, yeah, two thirds of a year. Uh, seven months ago, um, I used a, an online service called Kickstarter. And what that basically means is before this knife existed, before it had actually been produced, while it was still yet a twinkle in the inventor's eye, uh, he put the call out for cash to make it a reality. And uh, I said, yes, I'll put down my $15 or whatever it was, and uh, here's my reward. Um, It's an amazing knife. Let me just show you with all the packaging. So it's got this grater on the back, right? And so Rach loves fresh bread, real butter. But as we all know, you take butter out of the fridge, you scrape with a knife, big lump on the back, and then you go to spread it on the bread, and all you do is tear a hole through the middle of the bread, and now you have a very poor man's donut, I guess. Uh, well, this, when you, when you rub it on the butter, it, it actually grates it off. You know, did you ever push Vitaweets together and make Vegemite worms come out? looks like that. Little butter worms come out the back, and then when you flip it over and you spread it, it's all soft and gooey and good. Now, why am I showing you this? Is it because I'm bragging about my great knife? Yes, that's clearly what it is. I think if you ever have an opportunity to brag about a cool thing you own, you should take it. No, it's not that at all. It's because, you know, I ordered this seven months ago and it just turned up uh, this week. I got a a call from my parents and they said, oh, there's some registered mail for you at the house. Um, anticipating we would move house. I didn't even, I knew it was going to take a long time to get here. I didn't even send it to my old address. I just had it sent to my parents and forgot all about it. And I really did forget about it. When I got that text, we got registered mail for it, I had to rack my brain and think, what could that be? I haven't bought anything. I don't remember. Oh, yeah, it's the knife. Yeah, cool. Um, And what's happened in that seven months? We've moved house. We've had our first child. I've gone back to Bible college. Rachel's finished working. Uh, We've had a visit from her parents. Um, We've done a whole bunch of different things. Life has moved significantly from where it was seven months ago and then this knife kind of turns up from the past. Um, Christians have been waiting for Christ to return for some 2,000 years And I think it's easy to start to feel a little bit tired and start to feel a little bit like, I'm not sure if he's coming back. Or if he is, like, he'll just just pop up one day, probably not for another 2,000 years, so I don't need to think about it because a lot's changed in 2,000 years and it's really easy to feel a little bit tired. Um, When we read this section of Thessalonians that... I'm going to just move this out of my way. Uh, that Tracy very uh, skillfully read for us earlier. Um, we get an insight into the concerns of a church who are excited about Jesus returning. They're excited about it. Um, and they're basically, Paul's writing to them on the basis of a question that they've asked. So we, we get an inferred question from his writing. And that question is essentially, how can we be best prepared for Jesus coming back and as a subset of that question what does it mean for people who've died who believed in Christ and he hasn't come back yet what happens to them where do they go so he's got two questions 
and we're going to tackle the easier one first, then we're going to go to the more interesting one. Um, what does it mean for believers who die before Christ returns? Um, I'm really thankful that in my life I haven't had the, uh, you know, the, the opportunity, opportunity is the wrong word, but I haven't had to go to a lot of funerals. I'm really thankful for that. I just, that's how it's worked out. Maybe it's my place in life, but the funerals that I have had to go to are obviously sad. Some have been unexpected and really tragic. I uh, had a friend, a girl I went to youth group with, and she had a daughter who died of cancer. Tragic. The girl was probably, I think she was about four. Really sad. Others, long expected. We've seen it coming for years and years, like my granddad, who passed away with Alzheimer's. Writing was on the wall very early on. Um, but sad, you know. And, and the question is, you know, what, what happens to people who believe? Now, it's very natural for us to feel sad at a funeral. I think there's something unnatural about death in the sense that if you look at Genesis 1, you know, God puts together this perfect world, this perfect humanity, puts them down. He doesn't intend, for, that's not plan A to have death. Death is unnatural. It separates us from the people we love. Uh, it tears that uh, one flesh bond, if you like, if, if, if half of a married couple uh, dies. It's like a ripping. Uh, it's unnatural and we should feel sad at that. That's fine. Um, however, there's, a, there's an aspect for Christians. Um, if a believer dies, it's sadness, but it's buoyed up by hope. That's the hope of salvation. What does that, what does that really mean? You know, Paul writes... Um, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down with heaven with a loud command and the voice of an archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. These are to be encouraging words. There is this added dynamic for the believer the knowledge that just as surely as Christ will return, and we know that he will, no matter how tired we feel about it, uh, we know that Christ will return. Death is not the end for any of us. Um, before, uh, Even before those, those people who are living when Christ returns, whenever that is, even before they're drawn up to meet him, the dead will raise um, and we'll all go to meet him together. Um, so let's unpack that for a minute. There's some things that Paul is saying and there's some things that he's not saying and it's good to be aware of both. So firstly, Paul's made a really conscious decision here to use this uh, analogy of sleep. Why sleep? Because people who are asleep wake up. He could say uh, Christians who are dead and that would really plant the idea in our heads and he does refer to them as dead but first of all, he says sleep because that's a more apt description is to say they're asleep, they will wake up. Um, and we know that actually in a way that's true for everyone. Everyone will be judged 
when Jesus returns. Everyone will have to have an account for their life. It's just that those who have put their faith in Christ will be able to point to the cross. We don't have one. Point to the cross and say, um, there's the payment for my sin. Not anything I've done, not any great work I've done, not how long I've served the church, da, 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 none of those things. Purely, there's the cross, that's where I've put my faith, that's the payment for my sin and by the grace of God, that's all that he requires. Right? Now, for a non-Christian, they will have to point to themselves and say, I will be the payment for my sin and we all know that doesn't end real well. Uh, so we have this hope. We don't have to grieve like the rest of the world thinking, oh, not only has that person died, but eternity isn't looking real great for them either. We can say, yep, they're asleep and they're going to wake up and they're going to have an eternity with Christ which is going to be amazing. Um, in terms of what does this look like, Paul uses two words to describe this meeting. Two words in Greek. So he uses hapazo or hapazo, um, which denotes suddenness or violence so when he says they'll be swept up uh, he's using the same word he might use or or was used to describe um, Roman soldiers grabbing him and dragging him out of town so it's not like he's describing the amount of energy it's going to be full on it's going to be like that it's going to be harpazo and the second is apentesis and apentesis is a word that describes uh, in those times, if we were a little village and some super important person was coming to visit our village, uh, as they get close, we would send out the leading citizens, um, so your mayor, your uh, business leaders, your whoever it is, your respected elders, they'd go out and they'd meet the visiting dignitary and they would escort them back into town and like a, as an like an honour guard, like a, like a way of showing you're important, we've come to meet you and we will, we will honour you all the way back into town. Um, that's going to be us. That's our role in this. We are swept up and we become Jesus' escort, his honour guard as he comes back down to earth. Um, and none of us will be left out of that. Not the smallest Christian to the most amazing Christian. Um, the Apostle Paul will be there. Mother Teresa will be there. Whoever else you've admired in your life, as far as their faith goes, they'll be there. But I'll be there with my humble expression of faith. You'll be there. Um, Those Christians who maybe just became Christians the last few minutes or hours of their life and never, ever, ever got a chance to express that to anyone, they'll be there. And it won't be by virtue of the amazing things we've done or not done. It'll be purely by uh, our faith in Christ. So that's what Paul is saying and I think that's amazing and I think that's where you get that comfort and confidence stuff from and I think that's very cool. Now let's just see what he's not saying. Um, uh, When you look at this passage there is some imagery and some symbolism and we need to probably appreciate the fact that that exists so that we can understand what it's saying. So first of all we need to know that when he says um, meet him in the clouds... He may not, we don't know, it's not clear, he may not be literally saying, fly off into the clouds. Worth knowing. Because we need to consider this. Jesus' return, 
It's not going to be like if you or I came along, we're, if I can use a bit of a geeky term, we're spatially bound. So if I'm here, I can't be there. If you're there, you can't be up here with me. You, you're in one place at a time, you're spatially bound. Jesus doesn't have this problem. Um, we know from the Bible that uh, when he comes back, um, everyone will see him simultaneously. All around the world, they will know, they will see. Jesus himself says, all the world will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. So it's this globally simultaneous event that defies what we might think of as normal existence of being bound in one little place in time. Um, and clouds. Clouds are used all through the Bible to represent the glory of God. Um, you've got the pillar in Exodus, the pillar of cloud. You've got the clouds in the tabernacle. You've got the clouds uh, that come down on the transfiguration. Um, you've got all these examples of clouds representing God's glory. So maybe Paul is using symbolism to say Christ will return with the full glory of God and we'll meet him in the glory of God. Maybe, we don't know, but it's worth considering. Likewise, in the air, is he saying, oh, some non-Christians in a Boeing 747, he looks out the window, he's going to see Christians shooting past his plane off into the air to, to meet Jesus? Maybe, and that would be amazing, but maybe not. Um, in the air can also mean in the, uh, what's the word, like in the language of the time, in the sort of phrasing they would use, uh, the air was considered to be the place where the devil lived. Um, Satan's actually called, I can't remember where, but he gets labelled once in the Bible, the Lord of the Air. Um, because that was just, that was the, the language of the time, was the belief was that evil, Satan, the devil lived in the air, whatever that meant. So what could this be saying? Could it be saying we, we will meet Jesus mid-air? Highly probable, possible, yes, possible reading. Um, another possible reading, one that I think is, really cool is that maybe he's just saying Christ will return and he'll meet us on Satan's home turf and that will be his way of stamping his authority over evil and saying even in the air Satan where you think you are king I'm here I'm Lord and I will smash this down honestly we don't know but uh, the theologian John Stott cautions us not to fall into three temptations when we're reading this sort of text one is to think uh, oh, there's some gaps here, so I'll just fill it in with what I think I know. Uh, I saw a cartoon once that looked like this, maybe it'll look like that. And we, we plug the gaps with, um, with our own kind of made-up knowledge. He says, don't do that. Uh, the other one is we might, in our modern era, feel so you know, like sophisticated and smart and sciencey that we go, well, what a stupid idea that Jesus would return like this. It must be a myth. It must mean something else. We can't uh, conceive and we kind of say Paul was a bit backwards. He was a bit, you know, of his era and we don't need to take him seriously. And in doing so, we deny his position as an inspired apostle and we deny the inspiration of the scripture. Then the last temptation we might fall into is saying, um, we're just going to read this literally. If it says in the air, it means in the air. If it says in the clouds, it means in the clouds. And in doing so, miss the symbolism and miss the deeper meanings that Christ, uh, that Paul might be telling us about Christ's return. Um, in all that, he counsels us to say just to two things. He says, just look forward to Christ's return. Just be excited about it. That's the best thing you can do. Be excited about it and be fine with not knowing. Be fine with saying, 
I don't have all the details. You know, if someone gets cremated and they throw their ashes out into the sky over the ocean, how does resurrection work for them? I don't know. Does it matter? Not really. Um, be okay with what John Stock calls agnosticism about Christ's return, just not knowing, but be super excited about it. And here's why. So the second question of the Thessalonians. How do we prepare for Christ's return? How do we be best prepared? Firstly, it's real clear. Paul just says straight out, don't worry about dates and times. Don't try and predict this. Um, It can't be predicted. It won't be predicted. In fact, quite the opposite is true. Uh, People are going to be walking around going, peace and safety, peace and safety. Oh, we feel so good. What a utopia we've constructed for ourselves. And then suddenly, smash. In erupts Jesus like this. um, And the whole thing changes So don't even waste our time trying to think, ah, can we predict it? You know, where does this fellow fit into the big scheme of things? Ah, I've seen this government come up or go down or whatever. Can't be done. Can't be done. Interestingly, in the New Testament, this is the only place where, you know, Jesus uses this phrase, you know, that he'll return like a thief. Well, Paul adds this little bit here, like a thief in the night. Um, and that's really, uh, it's more than just an interesting tidbit of information. It's actually part of a metaphor that he's building about day and night. So let's, let's just hold that in our minds. Thief in the night. And uh, let me read to you that section. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we don't need to write to you. Yes, we know that. Um, because the Lord will come like the thief in the night. When people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, hope of salvation as a helmet, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another. Build each other up, just as you're already doing. So what does that mean? We're children of the day. We're children of the light. Um, Paul's painting a picture. He's saying, this world in which we live now, with all its sin, with all its pain, with all its death, with all its selfishness, with all its crumminess. Let's call that the night. That's what we're all born into. That's where we spend our lifetime. We live in this world. Let's call it the night. Now, if we were to paint a picture of God's kingdom, the only thing we can call it is day because it would be as different from this as night is from day, as polar opposite. Everything that is wrong will be made right. There is this complete separation to say night, that's where we live now and yes, it's pretty lousy in many regards. Jesus comes, it is daytime. Now where do we fit? We're children of the night? No, we're children of the day. We're children of the light. Um, He says, Christ has saved us not just from sin but he saved us into his kingdom. He saved us into his daytime. So that's where we fit now. We fit there now. So when we're saved, in that moment, 
when the Holy Spirit enters our heart as that final stamp of salvation and God says, I own you now. You're now citizens of my kingdom. We no longer fit in here. The Bible describes us as foreigners. You know, we're now aliens in a foreign land. Um, we don't fit in here anymore. We shouldn't expect to fit in here anymore. And I don't mean like you may not get along well with your neighbour because they don't like Christians. That may well be true. What I mean is the systems of this world, um, the selfishness, the self-absorption, the materialism, the you know, violence, the anger, all these sort of things, the sexual immorality, all these things should grate against us because we're sitting here going, I don't belong in this. This is not what I was made for. Um, I belong to the kingdom of the day. I belong to the kingdom of light. Um, I think when we're, when we're saved, we sometimes get frustrated because we think, I know God started this work in me to heal this sin, to repair the damage uh, that's been done to me or that I've done to myself is probably more accurate. However, I still do these frustrating things. I still fall in this way. Um, why, why aren't I perfect yet? Why didn't, why didn't God fix me? Um, a pastor of mine used to describe this as the now and not yet. We are citizens of the kingdom of the day. We do belong there, but we are not yet completed. We're not yet fully, the work in us is not fully done and therefore we live simultaneously in the now but the not yet and we live in attention. Um, however, looking at this, um, this analogy of day and night, we're children of the day. So one thing we can look forward to is when this kingdom comes, that is where we find our fulfilment. That is where that work is completed. And everything in us that is screaming out and saying, this, something about this place right now isn't right, finds fulfilment in Christ. We are finally fulfilled. So that sense of, I don't know what to do with my life. I feel like I should be doing something important. I feel like there's, there's a call on me, but I don't know what it is. Uh, it is in the sense that it can never be filled in this life. It is fulfilled in worshipping Christ forever. Um, there is this, this part of us that is just crying out and saying, I don't fit here. And when this day comes, all that will be completed. So like, yes, I finally, this is it. This is where I belong. This is what I've been meant to be doing all this time is just spending eternity with Christ and worshipping him and exploring his personality and his goodness and, and just his imagination and living it up with him. Um, this return, this is why it matters. It is the final piece of the salvation puzzle. So absolutely, we put our faith in Christ, we're saved, but the work is not completed. The work of saving this world is not completed until Christ returns. And all of creation is groaning for that. Um, all of creation is groaning for that. And that's why that question of how can we best be ready, how can we prioritise this is so important. Um, when Rachel and I got married, uh, we had to spend some time getting ready we did a lot of things. It wasn't as easy as just waking up on the day and I put on a suit and she put on a dress. We turned up, hey, someone married us, done. Uh, if we wanted to have a nice wedding, there was so much to do. We had to organise a church, had to organise a, a pastor, had to 
come up with some vows, had to organise food, organise a reception, think of what are people going to drink, what are they going to listen to, where are they going to be, how are they going to know to come along. The list goes on and on and on and on because this is what preparation is. This is what it's like. Is You, you just can't wake up on the day and go, oh, yeah, I'll kind of pull something together, I'll call my best mate and he'll come and marry us. Um, that's not preparedness. Um, Paul advises us to get serious about preparing for the day of Christ to return. Um, we can't know when he's going to return and that's why we're to adopt readiness as a, as a lifestyle, as a state of being. We're meant to live in that tension all the time of what is my life about? My life is about being ready for Christ and he may not turn up today, he may not turn up tomorrow or he might. It doesn't really matter um, Paul is saying, make readiness your lifestyle. People who live in the night, what do they do in the night? They go to sleep or they go out and party. That's what he's saying. Either way, if a thief turns up at their house, they're not ready. Uh, He's either going to come in the back door while they're asleep, take all their stuff and nick off, or he's going to do the exact same thing while they're out partying or drunk on the floor. They're not ready. Um, To be very clear and to step out of this for a second, he's not making a point here about alcohol and the rightness or wrongness of it. Um, There might be other parts of the Bible that make that point, but this isn't it. He's making a bigger point, a broader point, a more important point, which is um, when he says, be sober, he's not talking about alcohol any more than when he says, be awake, he's saying, actually, you shouldn't go to sleep ever. Um, What he's saying is, in this life, you want to be the opposite of that. If drunkenness is sinful excess then you want to stay away from that. What is sinful excess? It's maliciousness, it's rage, it is drunkenness, it's gluttony, it's materialism, it's having too much while someone else doesn't have enough. These are all sinful excess. It's all those things in our heart that put us first, all the things in my heart that put me first. They are sinful excess. That is what he's talking about, staying away from. Um, And he says, put on these godly qualities of love and faith and the hope of salvation Um, and then live it out. I mean, that's the challenge to us, isn't it? It's to live it out, is to take this this truth and to say, I'm I'm actually going to believe this. I'm going to believe that this matters. I'm going to make this the keystone of my life is, is looking forward to Christ's return and living a life around that so that I am ready when he comes and he may not come in that form in our lifetime but he's going to come in your lifetime saying here's something I want you to do here's the person I want you to be and it will be up to us whether we're ready to say yes or whether we need another two years just to wind up to I don't know going on a short term mission trip or whatever it is you know serving in the church um, we need to be sitting in a state of readiness um, we need to live out this earth shattering truth that Christ is actually returning um, and we need to encourage each other and build one another up in this and make sure that we are all doing this together as a community, discipling one another and making this our mission as a church. So that's my challenge to you because I firmly believe whether you personally are alive or being made alive when Jesus comes back, you won't regret being ready. You you won't regret it. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, there is um, 
There is a truth here for all of us and myself very, very, very much included that the the best thing we can do with our life is turn it over to you and be ready to live as citizens of the kingdom of day. Um, we just we just need to put you in the driver's seat at the end of the day and make your priorities our priorities. Make uh, every part of our life turned over to you and under your scrutiny. And most of all, to be ready to say yes whatever you might say to us just without even questioning it just say yes yes Lord I'll do that yes Lord I'll be that and live in this state of readiness for you and look forward to this amazing eternity with you that just gets better every day Lord you've been so generous to us I pray that not one of us would um, think of that generosity lightly or take it for granted And we just pray your blessing upon this church and that you would make us a little embassy of the kingdom of day and one that is just firmly, firmly focused on waiting for the day that your kingdom comes in this world. Amen.